All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Misfit Nation. Our next guest is an award-winning author and journalist who lives in many countries, currently Uzbekistan. Her third book, the novel Exile Music, was released by Viking in May 2020. It follows the lives of a family of Austrian Jew, Jewish musicians who seek refuge from the Nazis in Bolivia in 1938. Exile Music won the grand prize in the 2020 Islands Book Awards. So without further ado, let's get Miss Jennifer Style on here. worry that someday my daughter is going to write a memoir. That's my greatest fear, you know, is that I'll have a daughter who ends up writing about her parents. (laughs) And all her travels. (laughs) Yeah, right. So, yeah, when they're very young, it's easy. And then they hit a certain age where they want to be with their friends. And right. And you're moving them all the time and tearing them away from their friends. And I guess you know what that's like. It's pretty tough for them. It's harder. Like you said, it gets harder as they get older. The separation thing, it's really hard, especially in the high school years is the worst probably. Right, right. My daughter's only 11 at the moment. Um, but it's it's now hard on her when we leave countries because – she wants to be somewhere long enough to have really solid relationships and be able to maintain those over time. I mean, my sister's son grew up in the same town his entire life and has known his friends since they were born. And I think, wow, that's a a luxury in so many ways. You know. So weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, yeah, but it's something my daughter certainly can't relate to because she's been, you know, her first year of life, she was on 14 international flights. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> she's had, she certainly is. Our, yeah, her carbon footprint is out of control. Um, but, That's amazing. And it's a great gift to her. She she may not express it now. When she gets older, she'll, she'll thank you a lot for all the travels. Yeah, well, I'm grateful for you know, the chance that it's given her to grow up speaking other languages and living in other cultures and not taking anything for granted. And yeah, I I still remember one of the first times we visited my parents who are up in Vermont and she couldn't believe that you could drink the water straight out of the tap. (laughs) This was just the most miraculous thing. She'd only lived in countries where you would be poisoned if you drank the water out of the tap. <laughs> um, you got to boil it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she said, you can just turn on the water and drink it right away. <laughs> so, so that was fun. I mean, it's good. We shouldn't take water for granted. It's a scarce resource and getting scarcer. So we should appreciate it. If you don't start treating it right, it's going to be even worse. Exactly. Exactly. And these are things, these are preoccupations she already has. She, she knows she's growing up at a difficult time. So. And she's a, a part of history right now. That's uh, a little bludgeoned with uh, bad marks for the whole world. Uh, I know. She can write about really, really good memoirs. She can write about and then Hopefully in about five years, all this stuff will be cleared up. She'll be able to write that as she graduates you know, or towards the graduation from high school. <laughs> right. 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 I think 
I think she actually would be, she has a lot of interesting stories to tell. She'd be a great writer. At the moment, she wants to be a basketball player. So um, that's that's the current dream. But she's flexible. She she often changes her dreams and and that there's a lot to be said for that. So <laughs> yeah. So well, all kids that they, you know, I know I did. I went through many different things I wanted to be as a kid growing up. And somehow I wound up going from wanting to be a firefighter, being afraid of fire to joining the army. So two different things happened. I did that for 22 years and, and now I'm pursuing uh, higher education as a, a adult learner to get my PhD in Homeland Security as I move forward to try to get a, a job where I don't have to do as much physical labor, but I can do more mental labor. That's fantastic. I think that you, I think people should do PhDs when they're older and they actually are passionate about what they're studying and clear about what they want to do. I'm doing, I'm also doing a PhD right now by pure coincidence. Um, so in creative writing, but I figured, I mean, it's useful when you want to get teaching jobs as a writer, but I also am loving just the whole process of working with a supervisor and, and having someone to talk to about a book as I write it. Normally I write my books alone in the dark. And now I have this brilliant supervisor working with me and helping me think through all the theoretical issues and the critical issues and, and all the other decisions you make as an author. And it, it feels like a great privilege to be able to be in school and I'm 52. So I'm not the youngest person in my class. <laughs> I'm right there with you. I'm be 51 this year. So. Right. Oh, you're a youngster. <laughs> so young. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think this is a great age to be doing a PhD. I really do. I, I I never would have thought when I was in my 20s, there was no way you could have talked me into doing a PhD. I had no interest. I didn't even want to get a master's degree until I was 27. Um but, you know, we evolve, or at least the hope is that we evolve as we yes. get older. I know when I was, when I first came out of high school, I went right to college and I was not ready for it. I was, I just wanted to do stuff. I didn't want to learn anymore. I wanted to go out and be, be alive, I guess, and go live my life. I tried for almost three years. I played college football for two of them. And I just, one day I went to the recruiter's office and said, I need to do something different and joined the army and 22 years later at the end of my career, I finally got my bachelor's degree in 2015. Wow. Uh, last year I got my master's and now I'm in my PhD. So. Wow. Congratulations. That's a lot. Thank you. So I just, just kind of keep challenging myself and pushing forward now. Yeah. It sounds like some pretty terrific challenges. Yeah. My for... wife enjoys it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does she? Not really, but <laughs> I, I, I lock myself in the in my own office here and do all my work away from her all the time. So, right, right, <laughs> yeah. I so, um, sorry. So, how'd you get your starting in writing? Well, I actually I started out as a as an actor in the theater, and so my undergraduate degree was actually in theater, and I was very passionate about it and couldn't imagine doing anything else. Although I'd always written, I'd always kept a journal, so I'd always been writing, but I didn't think of myself as a writer. 
And I moved to Seattle to start working in the theater because I was too intimidated by New York to move straight to New York after university. So I I was working as an actor in Seattle, but I was pretty frustrated with the kind of roles that were available to women, to young women at the time. You know, I was in my early 20s and I was always stuck playing the young ingenue or the prostitute with the heart of gold. Um, but I never really get to play anyone with a brain, you know, a paleontologist or a um, military strategist or just someone interesting to me. And so I started writing out of frustration with that and began writing short stories and got a flyer in the mail one day by someone who'd been to my college, Oberlin College, and advertising a creative writing workshop. And I thought, that's just what I need. I don't actually have any training as a writer. So I called him up and said, I have no money and I can't afford your workshop, but I really want to take it. And he said, well, could you pay me $5 a week until you, until you paid off the, the workshop? And I said, yeah, that I can swing $5 a week. Uh, so, I mean, at the time I was doing all the things actors do. I was a barista and I waitressed and I sorted recycling crates and put corks in wine bottles and did every other kind of temporary job you could possibly do in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was greatly resistant to having a full-time job with regular hours. I just wanted to really be doing theater all the time. And then, so anyway, once I started doing the writing workshop, I thought, well, maybe I should go back and get an MFA, which I eventually did in New York. And then I was finishing that degree and I thought I'm going to be going back to temping and waitressing forever if I don't have a job that will get me a salary. Cause at the time I hadn't published anything yet. And I wanted to find a job that would be interesting and rewarding. So I went and got another master's degree from Columbia university in journalism so that was a really great move because journalists at least get a salary. It may not be high, but they do get paid for the most yes. part. Um, so I started working in newspapers and that was fascinating. And I learned a lot about just about how the world works working in newspapers. I I realized how little I knew about how a municipality is run or you know how education is funded and how the, the structure of a hospital and I develop a special interest in health and started doing a lot of health and science stories. So I loved being a journalist because I was learning something new every day and it was exciting, but I also missed the theater and I eventually switched to magazines, uh, which have a less crazy schedule. Cause you know, when you're writing for a newspaper, you can think you might be leaving the office at 6 p.m., but then the the police will page you and say, there's been a triple homicide in one of your towns. You got to get back here and cover it. So when you when I switched to magazines, my deadlines were a lot less crazy. And I was able to go back to performing at small theaters in New York while working in magazines. And so that's how I got started as a writer. And I always had wanted to write fiction, but once I was working as a journalist, the other thing I didn't think through because I, I don't tend to make decisions based on the future. I I make decisions based on what seems like a good idea at the time, which isn't necessarily a terrific way to live your life, but it worked out, I guess, for me ultimately. But I 
I ended up um, uh, working for a number of different magazines in in New York City and. Uh, oh, so when, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, so one of the things I didn't think through was that when I was writing all day as a journalist, that when I came home at night, I then my writing energy was pretty tapped out and I wanted to do something different from writing. And so I wasn't getting a lot done. And it wasn't until I moved to Yemen in 2006 that I finally found something worth writing about. And what was that one? Well, I had the opportunity, the unexpected opportunity to run a newspaper in Yemen as editor in chief. And it came to me from my high school boyfriend who had written to me from Yemen saying, would you be willing to come over here and train journalists? And I said, well, I can't leave my job in New York City. I have decent health insurance and a rent-stabilized apartment. I can't just run off to Yemen, but I've got three weeks vacation coming up. Would, would it be useful for me to come do a training for three weeks? And uh, the Yemeni owner of the paper said, yes, that would be great. Please come over. So I went over there for three weeks and I'd never been to that part of the world before. I had, been, I immediately had gone out and bought myself learn Arabic in 10 minutes a day workbook, And I was a swimmer at the time. So I would count my laps in Arabic to try to learn the numbers and, um, and then got on a plane to Yemen and Yemen was first of all, the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. And the people were the friendliest people I'd ever met in my entire life, which is certainly not how you read about Yemeni people in the media. Um, but it was the friendliest place I've ever been. I mean, I would walk down the street and every single person I passed would say, we love you. Welcome to Yemen. We love you. Um, it was almost like being Julia Roberts and walking down the street, you know, you, it was just, it amazed me. Um, and people, everyone, total strangers would invite me home for lunch and then want me to come every week and meet their entire family. And it was a wonderful place to be. I loved living in Yemen. I, I, so when I was finished with these three weeks of training that I was doing for the journalists at this newspaper, the Yemen Observer, the owner of the newspaper said, you know, I'd love for you to take over the newspaper and, and run it as editor-in-chief for a year. Um, and at first I said, well, I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure I can live on what you're offering, uh, which was around $12,000 a year. I said, I'm not sure I can you know, walk away from my job in New York. But I got back to Manhattan and walked into the same office I've been working in for five years and looked at the gray cubicles and the gray walls and the same people who were doing the same jobs and never asked me questions about Yemen, which I thought was strange because none of them had been to Yemen. Um, and I thought, I don't, I need to do something different. I need to shake up my life. I hadn't planned on moving to Yemen, but Yemen was the opportunity that was presented to me. And I thought I'd be a fool to turn down this opportunity because if it's a total disaster, I'll just write a book about it or something, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I ended up doing. I mean, I hope it wasn't a disaster. It, it was the hardest year of my life, but it was also one of the best years of my life. It was, you know, impossibly difficult, impossibly rewarding. And 
I fell in love with all my Yemeni reporters who taught me probably far more than I taught them because they had to teach me all about Yemeni culture and the various tribes and political parties and history and culture. And I taught them journalism. And so it was a, it was a pretty fascinating year and I felt pretty lucky to be there. And by the end of that year, I'd, I'd written a six, I'd spent six months writing a book proposal for my, for a book about running the newspaper in Yemen, because I wanted people to know the Yemeni people that I knew. I felt that a lot of the people I met in the U.S. had misleading ideas about what Yemeni people were like. And I thought, I want them to know Kokob, and I want them to know Ferris, and I want them to know um, uh, all the all of my reporters, and as humans, as people who are every bit as ambitious and funny and hardworking and intelligent as anyone else they know. And, and so that was one of my goals in writing that book. And that book, my first book, The Woman Who Fell From the Sky, is just the story of me taking over this newspaper in Yemen and the great challenges and hilarity that ensued <laughs> over that year. Because um, I made a lot of mistakes, as you do when you're in a culture you don't completely understand and you're trying to get a handle on things. And learned a lot while I was there. And then at the end of that year, I met the man who would become my husband. And I had been just about to leave Yemen. And in fact, I did leave Yemen. But then I sold my first book on proposal and had to come back to Yemen to finish the research. And then ended up moving in with Tim, my husband, and lived there another three years. And started my next book while while still living there and our daughter was born there so Yemen was good to me I I had this really interesting rewarding job running the paper and then I met my husband had my daughter wrote my first book um, so a lot happened to me just because of that one decision to say yes to that opportunity definitely and uh, kind of took your life on a different trajectory at that point and obviously a better one that you have your, your family now and you also have your success along with it. Right. I, I never could have predicted in my wildest dreams that this is the direction my life would take, but I certainly don't regret it. it, it it's been a wonderful journey. And since then, you know, we've had the opportunity to live in Bolivia and Jordan and London. And now we're here in Tashkent, Uzbekistan which is also a remarkable country. So yeah, I'm very lucky to, to be able to live in these countries and they certainly have been inspirational for my work. My, I, I wouldn't have written the books that I've written had I not had the chance to live in these countries. And it's great that you're able to use real world experience to write your books and not just all everything that's in your head. You can actually Say I actually sat in Yemen. I looked over at the sand dunes, or I looked at the the ocean in front of me, and I, I was able to write this. Exactly, exactly. And so, my most recent book, Exile Music, was inspired by Bolivia, and it was inspired by the 
the history, the history that I was unaware of before we moved there. But my husband came home from work one day and said, did you know there were 20,000 Jewish refugees living here during World War II? And, and I hadn't realized that. I mean, I'd, I'd read a lot about the Jewish diaspora in other parts of South America, but I hadn't, re hadn't read anything about the Jewish refugees from Europe who were living in La Paz and other parts of Bolivia. And I became very interested in that. And I interviewed survivors who are still alive. Most wow. of them were, yeah, late eighties, nineties. And it just was a remarkable story. And I couldn't find any other novels about, you know, this group of people and their experiences and, you know, to, to be coming from say Vienna to lose everyone you love, to lose your profession, your career, your home, your money, everything. And to suddenly be in South America where you don't speak the language or understand the culture um, and you're alone in a way you never have been before and you're grieving. Um, plus La Paz is at 12,000 feet. So you're adjusting to the altitude um, that I was just really curious what that must have been like for these people. And so I, I, I was able to do a lot of research, both talking to actual survivors, but also because I lived in Bolivia for four years, I was able to investigate all different aspects of the culture and uh, the landscapes and the history and to have Bolivian journalists double check my work, have, you know, IMRA friends double check my IMRA characters and mythology. So, I mean, there's a lot of journalism, a lot of reporting that actually goes into writing fiction for me because I'm often writing fiction that's set in countries, not my own. So there's a lot for me to make sure I get right. I think that makes it more legitimate as it goes to, to the shelves or to the digital world that you actually do the research and, and not just grab from thin thin air. Oh, I'm going to make this character because I think it's cool, but you actually can make a character based off reality. Right. I mean, my hope is that, you know, my hope with the Bolivia book was that any survivor who was reading that book would recognize the context as familiar, even though the story itself, the characters themselves are fictional. And one of the nicest things that happened after that book came out in 2020 was two weeks after the book came out, I got an email from a 90 year old man in Florida um, who wrote to me and said, I just finished exile music and it's so close to my own experience that I cannot believe you made it up. You know, tell me who you talk to. <laughs> um, so that was pretty much the most rewarding email I could have received from a reader because it, it tells me that I must've done my job somewhat. Okay. That, you know, I, that I got the details, right. And you got yeah. instant feedback from a survivor that makes it even a hundred percent better. Right. Right. And I speak to, I speak to a lot of on book tours, I've spoken to a lot of Jewish groups and um, I've, I've continued to hear similar feedback, which is really nice because I want to feel like this is a story. I really wanted to do justice to this story. It, it felt like an important story that was missing from the record of world war II, And I wanted these people to be known um, I wanted this situation to be known. I mean, one of my characters was a viola player from the v Vienna Philharmonic and the Vienna Philharmonic did horrific things during the war. They expelled all 13 of their Jewish musicians and sent them to the 
to their deaths or into exile. Um, they continued to employ Nazis until 1967. They, wow. I mean, it's just reading the history of the Vienna Philharmonic uh, gives you second thoughts about <laughs> wanting to support them. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And I just felt like this information exists, but it's not really widely known. So I hope, you know, at least I was able in my book to mention the names of the musicians who were sent to the camps um, from the orchestra. I want, I felt like it was important to preserve their names somehow. So they are in the book. And my character is, of course, fictional, but some of the people we played with were not. So I had him playing alongside real, actual musicians from that oh. time. And the, the mother was an opera singer, and I had to do a lot of research for that because every opera that she sings in, when I mention an opera, that exact opera took place on that exact date with those exact singers um, on the day that I say that it did. And oh, wow. that's incredible. <laughs> Well, it took me a long time to get all that right, but it just felt like it felt important. I mean, my greatest fear is having a reader write to me and say, you know, you got this wrong. This opera was never performed in Vienna or, you know, or that opera wasn't performed until 1947. You know, those are the those are the things I <laughs> me up at night. So you kind of went off base on this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so it's important to me to get to get those details right as, as far as I can. I mean, my characters were fictional, but again, I wanted everything about their lives, the foods they ate, the clothes they wore, the kinds of people they met to be as realistic as, as I could make them. So you've lived on both coasts of the United States and multiple countries. What would be your favorite place that you've lived or visited? It would have to be Yemen. I, I, the, I have never seen anywhere as beautiful as the old city of Sana'a just before sunset. I used to walk to the newspaper and back and it was about an hour each way and on my way back from the newspaper and I, when I turned a corner and first caught sight of the old city, which is this walled city and the buildings look like they're made out of gingerbread cookies with white frosting. And they have stained glass windows that light up at night. And with the sunset kind of glancing off those windows and this beautiful kind of gingerbread house city in front of me, it just was so exquisite. There wasn't a single day I didn't walk towards it thinking, I'm so lucky to be here in this most beautiful place. And it's heartbreaking what has become of it since I left because of course it has been bombed um, oh, yes. and it's a UNESCO heritage site but that doesn't seem to actually protect anywhere from getting bombed so uh, that makes me very sad because um, I really hope that what's left of that city can be preserved but I mean what makes Yemen special to me. It isn't just the architecture. It's also the people who I met there. I, I feel like the, the friends that I made in Yemen, both Yemeni people and other foreigners I met there are people who are still in my life in some way. It, it's like friendships that are formed in Yemen cannot be broken. Um, I feel, 
uh, yeah, a special connection to anyone who's been there in that country and lived there and experienced that culture. It's, it's pretty special to me. And I'd love to be able to take my daughter back there one day. Hopefully uh, the war that's going on there to, like they call it civil war. I think it's a more of a, a pushed war that's going on in Yemen right now. Hopefully that's, uh, ends at some point doesn't seem like that right now seems like both sides are pretty hard-headed at this point even though there's really much pretty much a stalemate right they need to to think of the people and not the them exactly because the two the two sides fighting this war are really not the majority of the Yemeni people the there's two kind of very bad sides who i think of as almost equally bad um fighting each other um, and all the Yemeni people are caught in between and they're all starving and facing all kinds of, of hardships. And it's really sad. I mean, a lot of my former reporters have had to flee the country. Some of them are still there. Um, my former neighbors are still there in the old city because they don't have money. They don't have visas. They can't leave. So it's it's only the lucky who, you know, I have one friend of mine sought asylum in Sweden. Another one sought asylum in Turkey. Um, Another one went to Germany with her husband who uh, had a student visa to there. So, so they're all over the place now, but I I do try to keep in touch with them. I know where you are now, the, once you make friendships in that part of the world, in Uzbekistan, uh, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, those relationships also last forever. Have you made any lasting relationships where you are now? Well, it's been pretty tough because we made some friends our first seven months here. But then in March 2020, I was evacuated with my daughter and we were forcibly separated from my husband for 11 months. And we were living in temporary flats in London for five months and then we're in France for another seven months while we waited to be allowed to come back here. And by the time we got back here last February, everyone we knew had left And, you know, in the middle of a pandemic isn't a great time to be making new friends when we couldn't really go out or go inside places. And so we were kind of cautiously starting to meet people. um, And then we were away for a great part of the summer. So now I kind of feel like we're just starting this posting. So I'm starting all over again, friends wise. Um, we have a couple of, of, of friends, but but I really look forward to making more friends here because I feel very much like I'm I'm starting the whole posting over again right now. I guess you could flip the switch and say, let's start now and make it happen and start going outside and seeing people's smiles again. And hopefully that'll happen a lot more across the world as well. I hope so. I really hope so. Um I hope things turn around here in terms of COVID and in terms of vaccination rates and everything. Um, And so we're able to get out a little more and I'm, you know, I work at home. So, and I work alone. So it's really nice when I have excuses to break up the work a little bit. Oh, definitely. And get some of that sanity back by talking to another human. It helps out a lot. It really does. It really does. Cause it, it can be quite lonely. And I know a lot of people around the world are feeling lonely in the middle of this pandemic. So it's important we keep in touch with people. 
Jennifer, the one question I wanted to ask you really was about the kidnapping. If you oh, right. talk about that a little, and where it was right. and how it happened or as much as you want to talk about it. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so this was, by the time this happened, I had been living in Yemen for three and a half years and I had been hiking every single week. I hiked with a group of Yemeni and other hikers every Monday. And then eventually when I was living with my husband and we'd been there three and a half years, I was six months pregnant with my daughter. I got to know a group of women who were connected to France in one way or another, mostly through their husband's work. And they invited me to join their hiking group. So on this one day that we set off hiking in August, 2009, there were five of us from five different countries. So it was me, there was a Romanian, a British woman, a Norwegian woman, and a French woman. And our only common language was French. So we were talking to each other in French and we were hiking not too far from Sanaa, maybe an hour, hour and a half. And we had been hiking about two and a half hours from the road and we'd stopped to picnic. And at the time I had a bodyguard once I was officially with my husband, I was assigned a bodyguard and he had 10. So, you know, he couldn't leave the house without 10 guys wow. suiting up. So, you know, my relative importance was I have one. <laughs> but that was fine. It was a it was a major adjustment for me to get used to having a bodyguard because you just you when you're starting out, you don't know where they stop, you know, the, for, I remember the first time we, I was on a road trip with bodyguards and uh, I, I needed the, a bathroom. And so the whole armored convoy had to pull over and my bodyguard hopped out to walk into this place in the middle of nowhere with me. And I thought like, please tell me he's not coming into the bathroom with me. I mean, like, where does this stop? You know, you just don't know if you've never had a bodyguard before, you don't know where they stop. Like, but fortunately, they do stop at the bathroom door and let you go in by yourself. Um, but anyway, so I was I was new at having a bodyguard. Also, you know, when you're walking with someone all the time, you feel like there's this obligation to talk with them, which is not just an obligation. It's also interesting because they would help me with my Arabic, things like that. But um, anyway, so I had one guard with me this particular day. And the other women had guards who were guards from Total, the French oil company. And so they didn't, they lacked the military training. So our guards were all Yemeni, but they were trained by the British military and they were exceptionally good. I cannot say enough good things about our bodyguards. They were amazing. Um, and the French guards from Total did not have that kind of training. Um, so anyway, that's just a little background for, for what follows. But so we we're eating and I looked up to see above us, you know, I, we were, we heard a bunch of shouting, but again, a lot of the times conversations will sound like shouting to us, but it's just people saying completely normal conversational things like, how's your mother doing? Or, you know, is your stomach ache better? Um, even though it sounds aggressive if you don't know what they're saying, but so we didn't worry about that. And then we saw a bunch of strange men with our guards, but we figured that's normal Yemeni behavior because our guards would be sharing their food with them. That's what, that's what they would do. They're just generous people generally. So, um, but then I looked up and found myself staring 
into an AK-47 um, held by the sheikh of the local tribe. I didn't know that at the time, but that's who he was. And so we scrambled to our feet really quickly and thought, okay, we must be trespassing. So we better move off of this land. Um, and we started hurrying away. And then my bodyguard said, please, uh, you have to come back. And it's counterintuitive to walk straight towards someone pointing a gun at you. I suppose you you know all this. You're a military person. Um, but I, I did not have a lot of experience with guns. And I mean, I'd been to the, the rifle range and done various trainings because you have to do all sorts of trainings when you uh, to deal with possible attacks. Um, but anyway, so I were trained. Part of our training was that you always do what your bodyguard tells you to do. 100% of the time. So when my bodyguard told me I needed to turn around and walk towards the man holding a gun at me, then I did. And I was the only one of the five of us who spoke any Arabic. So I went up to the sheikh and I said, salam alaikum. Uh, and he didn't say alaikum salam back. And as you probably know, having been in, in this part of the world, you know, if you don't alaikum salam someone back, it, it means that you wish someone ill. Um, and my bodyguard was offended on my behalf and said, you didn't alaykum salam her. You have to, she's, she's a woman. We respect women and she's pregnant. And, you know, what are you doing? And this, this sheikh was not alone. There were eight men uh, surrounding us holding AK-47s uh, at us. And so I tried to explain that we were friendly, that we didn't want to cause a problem but I, I, I don't know if you've had the experience of looking into someone's eyes and realizing that they don't see you, that um, I think sometimes if you, when I, I had the feeling that this man was not altogether there in terms of his mental health and that I wasn't registering to him as a human being. Um, and it was one of the scariest feelings I'd ever had because I thought this man, he doesn't, it doesn't matter in the least to him whether I live or die. It just, I, he doesn't see me as human. Um, and that was frightening. And the other women had been standing kind of together in a cluster nearby, but they couldn't move very far because we were surrounded by the, these men. Um, so my bodyguard kind of took over for me arguing with, with the shake because he was refusing to talk to me. Um, and I went over back towards the women. And while my bodyguard was trying to negotiate with the shake, I thought, okay, I have to call my husband. I, I, I don't know what he could do, but I, I have to let him know. So I'd lost my phone somehow in the shuffle talking to the shake and but the Romanian woman had her mobile phone with her and I had memorized my husband's mobile phone number, which I'm very thankful I had. <laughs> so I called him, but at the same time I was calling him thinking there's no way he'll pick up because at the time he was not allowed to carry a mobile phone into the embassy for security reasons. Everyone left their mobile phones in little cubbies outside the embassy. And so I thought, I'm not going to get him on the other end of this phone, but I have to at least try. And by pure luck, he was having a lunch at our home 
with uh, members of the Yemeni security forces. So, so when I rang, you know, he picked up and I said, we're in trouble. We're surrounded by men holding AK-47s. Um, and I was, I, to be honest, I was on the verge of completely freaking out, but my husband is trained not to freak out under any circumstance. And so it was as if I'd called to give him the weather report and he said, okay, um, does anyone have a satellite phone? Is Muhammad with you? Could you put him on the phone? Um, where are you? Do the guards know where you are, et cetera. So I put Muhammad on the phone with him and, and then, then Muhammad was trying to negotiate with the Sheikh who at one point wanted some cement in return for us cement being an expensive building material that people need. Uh, There were negotiations that went on for the better part of a day. And during that time, I started having contractions and I thought, oh, stress can bring on premature labor. And if I give birth to my daughter here, she will die I am not guaranteed to survive. Um, And so if we do survive this situation and I lose her, it will be my fault for freaking out Um, because it will be my panic and my stress that causes, that causes her premature birth. And so I thought, okay, well, if I don't want to lose her, I just need to calm the heck down. So I wasn't quite sure how to do that. So I, the only thing I could think of was to try yoga breathing because I'd recently been doing a lot of yoga um, and had never been quite sure what the whole breathing bit was about, but I thought (laughs) I'll give it a whirl now. And so did kind of yoga breathing while talking to my daughter and kind of this repetitive mantra, just saying, stay in, just stay in. It's, it's not safe for you out here. You need to stay right where you are. And so, you know, and, and the other women, I could not have been kidnapped with a bunch of better people because these women were incredible. They were utterly calm. No one freaked out. No one cried. Um, they were protective of me because I was pregnant. So one, you know, they would kind of touch my shoulder and just be reassuring. They would make jokes. They were I mean, I guess you probably experienced this in the military, like when you're in grave danger, you know, humor is a great coping mechanism. And yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think um, so I was able to finally um, calm down at least enough to just think, OK, um, a lot of this is out of my hands at this point. I just have to try not to do anything to get us killed. And, you know, Mohammed, my guard was very busy because the, the total guards had wanted to just pull their weapons and fire on the Yemenis. And had they done that, we just all would have died. Um, whereas our bodyguards were like, you don't ever pull a weapon unless you have to. Um, so, and they also, you know, are good at reading the kind of cultural cues, which is why it's useful to have bodyguards who are also uh, local to the country. Right. Um, but anyway, so there were several times at which they said, okay, we'll release you. And they'd let us get a few steps and then they'd stop us and change their mind. And um, anyway, after a long day of negotiations and not sure entire, you know, exactly how 
things happened, only I know that neither of our countries pay ransoms, so it wasn't that, but uh, eventually they decided they would they would let us go. Um, and we were still, again, a two and a half hour hike from the road, so we started walking as fast as possible. I mean, I was, I've never walked so fast in my life. Um, and the French sent up a pickup truck to pick us up about after we've been walking for, I don't know, half an hour, an hour, because of course my husband's team had sent the armored cars, but they can't go off roading. Um, so they had to wait for me down on the, on the pavement, the pavement. Um, and then, and then they took me back and, you know, I got back and my husband, um, was relieved to see me home. And I said, well, you know, weren't you worried? And he said, worried. I didn't have time to worry. I had to get you out. Um, meanwhile, the head of his bodyguards was in floods of tears, probably having just seen his entire career go down the tubes, you know, for if he'd, if he'd lost the ambassador's wife, that was going to be, uh, a black mark on his record. Um, but thankfully it, it all ended well and, and we made it out and, you know, my daughter did indeed stay in and she, <laughs> knows, you know, now that she's older, she knows this story and, you know, whenever she makes fun of me while I'm doing yoga or she's teasing me, I'll say, you know, don't you ever mock the yoga? Like yoga is how I saved your life. <laughs> and that was her first experience of actually listening to you. So that was good. <laughs> Yeah, it might have been her last, but <laughs> it'll get worse. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I know. I worry about this, but uh, yeah, yeah I'm glad you made it out of that. Uh, I know that had to be a harrowing experience, intense experience, especially as when you were pregnant at the time and not understanding what the shake was going to do or his people. Yeah, that that makes things a lot worse. Yeah, it felt I had no idea what was going to happen. And this did happen immediately after or not long after nine foreigners had been executed in the north, um, kidnapped and most of them executed in the north. And so this had just happened. And so you know, when, when they rounded us up, I thought that's what they're going to do. They're going to line us up and shoot us. Or um, next. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason why it shouldn't have been us. So... So I, that, I was pretty terrified and I am so glad that none of the other women lost it because if they had, I think I might have, but because they were so calm and together, I guess it taught me that, you know, freaking out never helps the situation. So it's true. Yeah. It does make you upset a lot more, but it does not help you at all. Right. But- I'm glad you were able to make it through. And thank you for sharing that with us. I'm sure that's a a good uh, clip for resilience and mindset for listeners to hear right there. Staying calm, got all of you through it. And yoga, of course, helped you to keep your daughter in you for the proper amount of time. Right. And (laughs) and since then, I think writing has also really helped me. There's, There's actually been a lot of studies about how expressive writing can help people cope with trauma. Um or at least process it in some way. So, I mean, the, the book I wrote after that, the ambassador, it called the ambassador's wife um, <laughs> by pure coincidence. Um, but th- that was inspired by that kidnapping. And so in a way 
it was just a way of kind of extra processing or exercising that. I mean, it's a completely fictional book, but it starts with a kidnapping that happened much like mine. <laughs> okay, and you had the facts down for that one. You didn't have to do a lot of research. So that right. was a pretty, pretty easy work for you right there. Uh, right. Jennifer, I appreciate you coming on here. Uh, how does someone get in contact with you if they want you to come speak on a show like this or maybe speak to a group about writing or anything like that? You can find me um, on my website, which is jenniferstyle.net. And so Jennifer, Jennifer is J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R. And my surname is Style, S-T-E-I-L. So jenniferstyle.net uh, is my website. And I'm also on social media. So you can find me on Twitter at JFStyle7 and on Instagram, JenniferFStyle. So I'm, yeah, I'm all over the social media. I'm pretty easy to track down. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Again, thanks for being on, and I'll let you get back to your uh, your night uh, your night news. That was great chat with Jennifer Style. Check out her work on her website and buy her books, and also get her to chat with you on your podcast or at your next event. She'll be great for it. So you know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on The Misfit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that would bring energy and a great story to the show, have them visit our website, themisfitnation.com, and reach out to us. As you know, Veterans Day is coming up in about three weeks. So if you have a veteran with a great story, uh, that wants to talk about their story and share a story with us, have them reach out to us via that same website, themisfitnation.com, and we'll get them on the show. We'll try to have four shows that week highlighting veteran stories. So as always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling, because we are the Misfit Nation. <laughs> <laughs>